Let me mention I had not uh, said anything to uh, Clay about this announcement, but I just learned this afternoon that a very dear and longtime friend of ours, Jim Tittle in Knoxville, actually he's a member at the East Side Church in Maryville, uh, but he's in the Knoxville area. They live in Maryville, and they attend where my son-in-law, Kevin Ruiz, preaches. But Jim has been hospitalized. He's not doing well. He's been in a long battle with multiple myeloma, a very, very terrible form of uh, cancer, and um, has fought that bravely and courageously. He's uh, a great Christian, and I would certainly appreciate, and I know that family would, your prayers on his behalf as he's not doing well uh, at this time. Jim. Uh, volunteered hours upon hours of work with us back when I was with Truth for the World and helping us produce that television and radio uh, program. And uh, he's a great servant in the kingdom. And uh, we certainly want to remember Jim Tittle and his family in our prayers. We are concluding tonight our study of 1 Thessalonians, uh, winding up this expository series of uh, Paul's first epistle. And uh, it is, of course, a great study, as is always the case with any section of uh, Scripture, but much to be gleaned and learned from uh, Paul's writing to this uh, church not too many months after he had established the, uh, the church. And uh, in writing to them, he was, of course, encouraging them uh, to faithfulness, uh, to be strong, and at the same time correcting some misapprehension that they had developed concerning the uh, imminence of the second coming of Christ and uh, thinking that some of their loved ones who had died in Christ, even though they had died in Christ because they had died before the Lord returned, that they would lose their reward. He deals with that and, of course, in the second Thessalonian epistle uh, as well. But in this final uh, section of Scripture, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're ready for verses 16 through 28. It is uh, perhaps one of the most concise and compact sections of Scripture that one could find in terms of its content that is packed into uh, a very short space, if you will. Uh, as you will see, as we'll just simply read these verses and then come back and, and uh, study them in a little more detail. Verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Verse 21, test all things, hold fast what is good. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. So much is packed just into those uh, few verses there in terms of uh, uh, tremendous content and the uh, urgent admonitions of the Apostle Paul. And then... As he nears the conclusion of this epistle, he writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he reminds them, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And then he reminds us of his humanity as he asks them, Brethren, pray for us. Here was a great apostle, a great worker in the kingdom of God, but he understood his need for prayer uh, on behalf of his brethren. And then sends his greetings, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. And then I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. As we said, so much is packed into uh, these verses going back to verse 16, which is the shortest verse in the English Bible. Now, you thought it was Jesus wept, didn't you? 
but it is rejoice always in the original language of the New Testament. In the original language of the New Testament, there are only 14 letters in the Greek in, in verse 16. A little trivia for you here that uh, won't cost you anything. Rejoice always is the uh, shortest verse in the English Bible in the original language. Jesus wept is 16 letters in the Greek. Rejoice always is 14 letters. So this is truly the shortest verse in the Bible if you're looking at the original language. But we're not so concerned about how many letters it takes to say rejoice always. What we are concerned about is the admonition itself. Rejoice always. And it is so typical of the writings of the Apostle Paul, uh, the need to rejoice, the admonition to rejoice, the cause for rejoicing that is ours because we are in Christ. Rejoice always. Now he doesn't say rejoice in the Lord here always, but that is certainly uh, implied here because that's the reason they could rejoice always, because they were in the Lord. And you well remember that in the Philippian epistle, it was an admonition that read, in effect, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And again, reminding these Christians, and thus all of us tonight who are children of God here tonight, that we have reason for constant rejoicing. That there is a cause for a joy that is unspeakable, that cannot be taken from us, despite, as we have often said, the external circumstances that do occur in our lives and that will occur in our lives that are unpleasant to say the least, sometimes deeply tragic and uh, extremely sorrowful. And uh, when those times come, to weep is certainly something that is expected. In fact, it is something that this same writer anticipated would come because in the Roman epistle he admonished the Christians there and thus Christians for all time to weep with those who weep. Yes, rejoice with those who rejoice, he said in that text, but weep with those who weep. Understanding that there would be occasions for weeping. How then does, does Paul write rejoice always and at the same time in another epistle say weep with those who weep? There's no inconsistency there because even when we are weeping, even when external circumstances have produced tears of deepest sorrow, that does not change the inner joy that is ours if we have that covenant relationship with God and Christ. That is present. That is there if we are indeed faithful to the Lord. There is that inner joy that is there. There is that reason for rejoicing in that sense. There is that peace. There is that satisfaction. There is that security and there is that thankfulness for that security and for that cause for rejoicing that he will speak of in verse 18 when we get to it in just a moment but to rejoice always is something that the apostle paul repeated on more than one occasion in more than one of his epistles and it simply reminds us that even when those external circumstances bring tears of sorrow and deep grief there is something that that sorrow and those external circumstances cannot rob us of, and that is the joy that we have in Christ and the hope that we have in him. Thus he can admonish, rejoice always. And then pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. 24 hours a day, seven days a week we're to be praying, right? Well, of course not. Pray without ceasing simply means to have a fervent and regular prayer life and to make prayer a priority in your life as a child of God and that there should never be any sizable gaps of any length of time 
between one prayer and another in the life of the child of God because we continually pray and we maintain an attitude of prayer and reverence toward God and a mindfulness of the presence of God and of the uh, blessings that God uh, gives us. And so prayer is such an important part of the life of the child of God. And as he brings this first epistle to a close, he does so reminding them to rejoice because of their relationship with the Lord and to pray without ceasing. But in verse 18, he says, in everything, give thanks. And thankfulness was something that was characteristic of Paul's writings, not only in this epistle, but his others. And it's very reminiscent, this uh, passage here when he says in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you it's very reminiscent of the Philippian letter again where in chapter 4 of that epistle you remember and verse 6 beginning he said what be anxious for nothing don't be anxious that is worried about anything but rather what in everything by prayer and what supplication and then he adds a very important phrase with thanksgiving in everything by prayer and supplication, with what? With thanksgiving. That thanksgiving is to permeate the prayer life of the child of God. Thanksgiving is to be a regular, integral part of our prayer life. How many prayers to God should we offer without ever thanking Him for anything at all in any of those prayers? How about none? <laughs> How about none, really? Because there is something for which, there are things for which we can always be thankful and should express mentally, if not verbally and audibly, our appreciation and thankfulness to God for those things. And that's why that even when external circumstances are not as we would like them to be, and sorrow strikes, and suffering comes to our lives. Even in those times, uh, there is something for which we can always be thankful. We have a list of things for which we can be thankful in any time, whether those times are, quote, the good times externally or the bad times externally. And so in everything, give thanks. Even in adversity, especially on the other side of adversity, so many times we can look back and see the blessings that have come from enduring that adver adversity faithfully as a child of God and being stronger, as we have often said, on the other side of that adversity. Simply reminiscent of what James wrote in his epistle, which we studied not that long ago. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you, when you fall into what? Various trials knowing that the trying of your faith does what? Works patience. What is patience biblically? It is steadfastness, standing up under those difficulties, standing firm under those trials, and being stronger as a result. Therefore, in everything, regardless of what those things are, there is something for which we can be thankful. And he says, we better be because this is the will of God. This is the will of God, but here's the key phrase. In Christ Jesus. That's the key, isn't it? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Is he referring to simply being thankful? Or is he going back and referring to the joy that we should have and the, the prayer that we should be offering uh, unceasingly to God? Perhaps all is involved here. It's the will of God that we rejoice. We don't deny that. It's the will of God that we pray without ceasing. It's the will of God that in everything we give thanks. And all of it is because we are in Christ Jesus, but that's the key. Those who are outside of Christ Jesus cannot pray without ceasing with any 
hope of having those prayers answered in accordance with the will of God. Because as we mentioned this morning, those who turn away their ear from hearing the law, what about their prayers? Proverbs 28.9 says they are an abomination to God. And so we have to make sure that our lives are in covenant relationship with God if we're to have that wonderful privilege of prayer and knowing that those prayers are heard. Can we truly rejoice always if we're outside of Christ? Well, of course, we can rejoice none of the time, hopefully, really. Uh, we would want those who are outside of Christ to recognize uh, their miserable condition in the hope that in the recognition of that miserable state, they would do something to change that miserable state. But we need to appreciate that in Christ Jesus is that key phrase, as it's used so many times throughout Scripture and especially in Paul's writings. And then the next admonition, do not quench the spirit. Quench is a word that associates itself with the idea of fire. Don't put out the fire, in other words. And, of course, the Holy Spirit uh, in Scripture is often associated with fire. There were tongues like as a fire that sat on each of the apostles as they preached the gospel for uh, the first time. And so the figure that he uses here, don't quench the Spirit. That is, don't put out that fire. And the immediate context may certainly indicate the miraculous gifts that were available and in the church at Thessalonica, as well as elsewhere in the early days of the church before this was in its final and completed form, but whether or not miraculous gifts are in mind immediately here in this context, the application is still valid for us in this time in which miracles no longer are needed and are no longer being performed. The admonition is still pertinent to us. Don't quench the spirit. That is what? Don't put out this fire. That is, don't put out this living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword word of God that seeks to change and affect your life favorably. Don't ignore it. Don't turn your back upon it. Don't take it lightly. Don't study it casually. But feed upon it with a faith in its inspiration and with the realization that as you do, then your life will change completely because of the transforming power of the Word of God, because it is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul reminds us. The context may continue to be a miraculous one here, obviously, in verse 20 when he says, do not despise prophecies. Well, of course, Paul is writing at a time when there were prophets, New Testament prophets, as there had been Old Testament prophets. And these men were men who were inspired because this, again, at this time was not in its final form. And so the word of God was in men who were inspired. And prophecy was a, uh, a gift that many uh, had in the early church. And it was a desirable gift. You remember back in the first Corinthian epistle when there were so many in that church who were clamoring to be able to speak in tongues, Paul wrote to them in those chapters in 12, 13, and 14 to uh, remind them that tongue speaking was not, uh, uh, was not that uh, great of a gift unless someone was there to uh, interpret so that people could uh, understand. And he did talk about prophecies and being able to expound the Word of God and to teach the Word of God and exalted that as something that was vitally important. It's not whether I can speak in a language I have never learned that is so important. It's what I'm transmitting in my teaching. And so prophecy was something that was not to be despised if indeed it was from men who were filled with the Spirit and who spoke by the Spirit. And the next 
uh, admonition may tie closely to the previous one about despising, despising prophecies because now in verse 21 he says, test, as the New King James says, test all things, hold fast what is good. As he uh, has just written about prophecies and not despising prophecies, the reminder here in verse 21 may be, but test those prophets. In other words, make sure that what is being taught is from the Word of God. Could they do that? Uh, they didn't have this in the early church. Could they do that? Yes, because they had, again, miraculous gifts, one of which was the discerning of spirits, which enabled certain ones who had that gift to be able to discern whether or not someone was teaching uh, the truth. And so that was a means by which they could uh, test these uh, prophecies. Prove all things, as the King James says. Test all things, the New King James says. And what? Hold fast what is good. What does that also imply? That also clearly implies that there is a standard by which we can test all things. Now, of course, that standard was not the fully completed written word of God then, but as we've already mentioned just now, they had a means by which they could test by a standard whether or not men were teaching the truth. Is this a valid admonition then for us today? Of course it is. Prove all things or test all things. How? By what? By this. We have the standard by which we can test anything and everything that is taught in the world of religion. And we can compare that to the Word of God, and we can know whether or not men are speaking from their own preferences or their own traditions or their own doctrine or whether or not they are preaching and teaching the truth. We must reject everything that is contrary to this book, and we hold on to and accept everything that is in harmony with this book. And then he says, abstain from every form of evil. The King James says, from the appearance of evil. Sometimes people uh, feel like, well, even if it looks like it might be wrong, stay away from it. Well, there's nothing wrong with making sure we stay away from it, but that's not what this verse says. The verse says, abstain from every form of evil, as the New King James translates it. In other words, evil, when it presents itself clearly and it is there and it is wrong, you stay away from it you stay away from it. Now, obviously, we need to protect our influence and make sure that we uh, do not find ourselves in places where things could be misconstrued about us, but at the same time, this is not teaching specifically about that kind of thing. It is saying abstain from every type or every visible form of evil, that is, which is actually uh, evil. If I were walking by a liquor store and I heard someone inside say, help me, please, I'm dying, could I say I'd love to, but I can't go into that liquor store because that would be the appearance of doing something wrong? Well, of course not. I'd go in there and do what I could and trust any brother who saw me go in there to know that I was in there to do something other than get a drink or something. <laughs> I would hope I would get the benefit of the doubt. But I also uh, would do what I could in those situations. Now, putting myself in a situation where an influence, my influence would be compromised is another matter uh, in uh, certain circumstances, obviously. We don't need to do that. But what he's saying here is stay away from every form of evil. Now verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two aspects of this verse I want to look at. First of all, sanctify. 
May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now, some might take that and say, well, there it is. Nothing for me to do. God's going to do it all himself. And that's exactly what it says, doesn't it? The God of peace himself sanctify you completely. No part for me to play. No, that would be reading more into that verse than one ought to be reading into that verse. God will do his part, and without God's doing his part, there's no possibility of our being sanctified. But that is not to say that God is going to do it all and that there's no part that we play in our sanctification. Obviously, there is. Again, so many similarities to Paul's writing in the Philippian letter we've been calling attention to. And here's another one. In Philippians chapter 1, he thanks God for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now as he writes to the Philippians, verse 5. And then in verse 6 of Philippians 1, he says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who has begun a good work in you, that's God, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? That God who began this work in you, that is when you became Christians, he's going to do his part in seeing that you reach a faithful and happy conclusion to your Christian life. Does that mean that they didn't do anything when all this began to which Paul refers here? All you have to do is go back to Acts chapter 16 to see when the church at Philippi began. And it began by people doing what? Obeying the gospel of Christ. Were they sanctified when they obeyed the gospel of Christ? Yes. Did God do it all alone by himself? No. So obviously, Paul's statement in Philippians 1 verse 6 cannot mean that God himself was going to do the work and that there was nothing they had to do to become Christians or nothing they had to do after becoming Christians. And it doesn't mean that here in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. All he's saying is that God is going to do his part. And what is it to sanctify? What does it mean to be sanctified? It does not, as some Pentecostals think, to be sinless. And that sanctification brings about sinlessness. That is not sanctification. Sanctification is simply, in its noun form, to be set apart for a holy use. It is from the same word from which we get the word holy or holiness. Uh, both of these terms come from that same uh, idea. And so to be holy is to be set apart. Now God is holy. He is sanctified perfectly, isn't he? He is separated, in other words, from sin. That's the idea of sanctification, to be separated from a sinful life. Well, God is separate from sin as daylight and dark. He cannot be a part of sin. He's perfect in sanctification. That is, he's perfect in holiness. But he sanctifies or sets us apart when we what? Respond to the gospel and obey the gospel. Then we're justified, and there's a difference in justified and sanctified. We're justified or made free from sin, and then we're set apart or sanctified for what? for a holy use thereafter, as what? Children of God in the kingdom of God. Is that sanctification process accomplished just like that overnight? No, we're freed from sin, from past sins overnight, as it were. Not literally overnight, but when we're buried in baptism and the blood of Christ reaches us, we're justified by that blood, and we're set apart then as we rise to walk in newness of life. But does the sanctification process continue? Do we get stronger? Are we admonished to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Yes. Therefore, sanctification is a matter of degree. We become more holy, more sanctified, more set apart the longer that we feed upon this as we should. And that's the tragedy. That's the tragedy even in the church of our Lord today. 
is that so many fail to feed so that they do not continue to grow and become more and more sanctified, that is, holier and holier in the terms of their relationship to God and more like God every day. That's my goal, or should be my goal as a child of God. Be holy, for I am holy. That goes back to Leviticus 11. Be holy, for I am holy. Then Peter repeats and quotes from that Old Testament book in 1 Peter and says, You be holy. As he said, be holy, for I am holy. That's sanctification. That's being set apart. And that's growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. And if we'll apply ourselves to that, we'll experience a joy and a peace that is truly unspeakable joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding. But the great tragedy is that so many in the church don't feed as they should. Therefore, they don't grow as they should. And when they don't grow as they should, they don't know. They don't know the peace from the God of peace himself who will do his part to sanctify us completely. And when he says completely here, and that's the second aspect here I want to look at, completely in your whole spirit, soul, and body. And that's an interesting expression. And some have said, well, it's just simply a, a, an accommodative expression based upon the prevailing uh, Greek philosophy that man was comprised of, of body, spirit, and, and soul and that he was simply using uh, an accommodative or a figurative expression to, to, uh, to stress his point about complete sanctification, and that is the opinion of some. I don't share that view. I think, that, I think it makes sense that since uh, God is a, a triune being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that the pinnacle of his creation uh, would also logically be a triune being, possessing a body, and nobody denies we have a body, you know, we know we have a body. But what about, what about spirit and soul? Is there a distinction between the spirit of man and the soul of man? Well, another passage in Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and verse 12 uh, mentions a distinction as it exalts the power of the word of God. And the Hebrews writer there in verse 12, remember, says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of, of the heart. Now, it's interesting to look at this matter, and I'm not going to go into great detail uh, with it in this context here, but um, in uh, doing some study on it, I appreciated what, uh, what Brother Wayne Jackson had summarized and and others have uh, written similar things. And basically what they have written is an observation about the Scriptures and what the Scriptures uh, say about these words spirit and soul. What is the difference between the spirit and soul of a human being? And I appreciated Brother Jackson's response in the saying that there's no simple answer to this question. And here's why. Because the words soul and spirit are employed in varying senses within the different biblical context in which they may be found. In other words, you have to look at the context in which these words are used to see what their meaning is in that particular context. And then he just briefly talks about the soul and the, the Old Testament use of that word. And in Genesis 2 and verse 7, we have that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. 
There he became a living being, a living being. And it uh, is a word there in the Old Testament that is found more than 780 times. And the word that is translated soul there in relation to man becoming a living soul is also the same words that's used for the beasts and the various creeping things. They became, in one sense, the same thing that man did in the sense that man was given what? Life, breath, animal life. We share that much with uh, our animals, don't we? I share that much with my dog, Molly. Uh, she is a, she has, she's a living creature. I'm a living creature. But uh, I also have something she doesn't have. And uh, there is a distinction there. But that's the way the word is used uh, in the Old Testament uh, many times to simply indicate uh, life or being. And then in the Greek New Testament, the original word for soul there is the word from which we get our word psychology. It's the word suke, and it's found 103 uh, times. And how is it used? Well, it's used in different ways. Sometimes it's used to describe a person. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, Ezekiel in the Old Testament, going back to an Old Testament reference, says, the soul that sins, it shall die. He's talking about the person who sins. Uh, that person will die. In the New Testament, in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20, remember Peter said, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, uh, not the putting away of the filth of flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's verse 21, but in verse 20 he says, wherein eight souls were saved by water. And then he goes on, the like figure. Eight souls were saved. Eight persons were saved. Here's an interesting use of this word soul. Uh, and, the, and the original word in the uh, Greek. In some contexts, soul simply has reference to biological life, the animating principle, as we said, that is, uh, uh, that is uh, characteristic of both humans and animals. That's the Old Testament word, uh, the Hebrew word, but also the New Testament word is used in that very same way. If you look at Matthew chapter 2 and verse 20, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 20, Herod, well, verse 19 to gain the context, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. That word life is the word soul. That is translated soul at times in the New Testament. It's the word suke. And it is obviously there a reference to what? Physical life, his life. Obviously, Herod was not seeking to take the immortal soul of Jesus. He was seeking to take his what? His life. But the word that is used for that is the very same word that is sometimes translated soul when it means the immortal soul. But not in this case, Matthew 2, verse 20. And then there are others, but for the sake of time... We'll just simply use that one. Then you have the mind. You have the aspect of man that is characterized by the intellectual and emotional side of man. It's the eternal component of a man that's fashioned in the very image of God, Genesis 1.26. And it is that part of man that can exist apart from the physical body. Remember what, what Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 28. He said, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, 
but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And obviously the word soul there, as it's used, indicates that which lives on after death. Well, then we come to the word spirit then. And how is the word spirit used? Well, it's used at times just meaning breath. At times it just means breath. It can mean uh, the wind in the Old Testament and the New Testament Greek term is pneuma that occurs 379 uh, times. But it, uh, it can mean a non-physical being in a higher sense. For example, uh, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That's that same word, pneuma. But you know that same word spirit can also refer to a person the way soul refers to a person. Try the spirits, whether they be of God. For many false prophets are gone out into the world. 1 John 4 and verse 1. Try the what? The spirits. There, spirit is used by a figure of speech called synecdoche where uh, that is put for the person himself. The false prophet himself is referred to as a spirit. It's the equivalent of false prophets. And the word pneuma Spirit may also refer to that inward man that is synonymously used with the word soul as it is used. Don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both what? Soul and body in hell, Matthew 10, 28. That soul used in that immortal sense. Is spirit ever used in that immortal sense as well? Oh, yes. I'll just give you one passage and that would suffice in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth about withdrawing from the man uh, who was living with his uh, father's wife? In verse, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5, uh, he says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so it's clear there that his spirit refers to that which can be saved. Therefore, it's the immortal part. So, spirit is sometimes used synonymously with soul. Uh, that's clear from Scripture, but it's also used, they're both also used in different senses. So, the bottom line is, and so incidentally, it can also be used as a matter of attitude. Uh, you can have a spirit of fear. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, uh, the Scripture said. What is that? That's the word spirit, but it's used in reference to a matter of attitude. And so the conclusion is, in this matter, is that the context, as Brother Jackson points out in his excellent summary of these matters, he said the context can override all other linguistic considerations, uh, etymology, grammatical format, and he says a Bible term extracted from its original context loses its divine authority. And so we have to make sure that we keep it in context. But I like what he says here. He says, one thing is for certain. An honest student cannot study the uses of soul and spirit in the documents of Scripture and then conclude that humans are wholly mortal. And yet, he says, this is what skeptics contend and some religionists allege as well, namely Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists. How can you study the Scriptures honestly and conclude that man is nothing but a mortal being? Uh, the point is, you cannot. And so Paul says, my wish for you is that God will sanctify you completely, set you apart. 
what? Your spirit, your soul, and your body. The life force that is in us will, will no longer be in us when this body dies. But there is something in us that will live for all eternity. And sometimes that is called the soul, meaning that immortal part of man. Sometimes it is referred to as spirit, meaning that immortal part of man. But the beautiful thing is, it's there. And it will live forever. But in one of two places either in heaven or in hell. And he says, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And how does he call us? As we bring our thoughts to a close, he calls us through the gospel, as we have often pointed out, as the Second Thessalonian letter points out in Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. And then he says, pray for us, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. He was not initiating a custom of kissing. That was already uh, in practice there. He was regulating the custom by saying make sure it's a holy kiss and not a kiss of passion or uh, something that is inappropriate. And then he says something here that the papacy should have learned long ago. Of course the papacy should have learned long ago that the papacy didn't need to exist, <laughs> obviously. But he says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. And commentators have said what Paul admonishes, Rome, the papacy, forbids. In other words, they'll tell you the priests are the only ones who can understand the scripture and they have to tell you what it says. Paul says, no, you see that this is read to all the brethren because they can understand it. And then he closes with his characteristic, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with those who will respond to his grace. The grace of God that came teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. And what it came teaching you to do is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do it. If you have and need to come home because you've wandered from the truth, we plead with you to come home now as we stand to sing to encourage you.